the best entrepreneurs combine, I call it rebus, which is a term from, from alchemy, which is in alchemy, the superior human being is the one that combines opposing attributes in balance. And some of the best CEOs are bold, yet risk averse. They are micro, but they're macro. They're leaders, but they're managers. They are able to do both things really, really well. And what's interesting is uh, sometimes it's not one person, it's pairs of people. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Fintech Leaders Podcast, a show where we will learn from today's global leaders that will dominate the 21st century in fintech business and beyond. Coming to you from New York City, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. Today, I sit down with an absolute legend from the investing world, Martin Escobari, General Atlantic's co-president, chairman of the firm's investing committee, and head of Latin America. Founded back in 1980, GA has become one of the premier global growth equity funds and has grown to about $80 billion in assets under management with 169 active portfolio companies. Over the past 41 years, the GA team has seen it all. And fortunately for all of us, Martin shared an incredible amount of knowledge and lessons, including Martin's transition from entrepreneur to investor, the importance of collaboration for young, rapidly evolving industries, and what GA looks for in their co-investing partners, common traits of the best entrepreneurs. Martin shares the top three traits those founders have in common. Ingredients for a successful board. Martin has been a board member of dozens of companies, and he shared what a great board looks like the incredible performance of Latin America tech, despite its macro challenges, and just a lot more. I hope you enjoy this incredible and inspirational episode with fellow Bolivian Martin Escobari from General Atlantic. All right. Well, Martin, welcome to the FinTech Leaders Podcast. Truly, truly honored that you're joining us. And I must say, I'm especially excited because uh, I have a, a Bolivian in front of me, yet another Bolivian like me, and you're definitely a, an example to all of us. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm so glad that we're getting this done. How, how are you doing today, Martin? Miguel, thank you for inviting me. It's great to find a fellow Bolivian in the fintech universe, and, and good to be here. Fantastic. Well, Martin... We have a lot to talk about, and I, I wanted to let's hear a bit about your journey. And, you know, in particular, I would love to hear about your entrepreneurial experience that eventually led you to become an investor. Sure. Listen, um, I was born in Bolivia in a small town, actually, in Camiri, and came to the States on a scholarship and did my MBA in the States. And then Wanted to go back to Latin America, but Bolivia was too small and chose Brazil. Initially as an investor. So I got a job in a private equity, Brazilian private equity fund owned by the, what is now known as the 3G guys who were at the time, you know, very forward thinking in their investing. And uh, my first assignment was to look for uh, internet entrepreneurs to back. And back in 1998, there weren't many of those. <laughs> and very quickly came to realize the massive opportunity that was being created in front of our eyes with Web 1.0, the beginning of e-commerce, the beginning of uh, fintech. 
and decided to become an entrepreneur. And uh, a group of us bounded together to create Submarino.com, which was at the time the number one e-commerce company in Brazil. And its business model was a little bit of a mixture of Alibaba with Amazon. So it was more than just physical good, third party. And it was initially very successful at, at raising funds and had numerous roles over the seven-year journey as an entrepreneur. as head of business development, head of international, opened up five new countries. Then the dot-com crash came. I closed five old countries and we had to focus on Brazil. And then I became, um, we had to spin off our B2B unit and I became CEO of that business in Brazil. We sold that business and then we reached profitability in Brazil and then took the company public and eventually sold it. It was a successful investment. I mean, we sold it for close to $2 billion. It was the first technology company to go public in the Vovespa. So in that in, in that, that regard, it opened the way for and many others since uh, followed. And I learned a lot as an entrepreneur. Uh, the near-death experience was painful. The uh, having to reinvent ourselves a number of times was formative. But as I reflected after the finishing of that chapter when we sold the business, the life of a manager, the life of an entrepreneur involves making 10, 20, 30 decisions a day with massively imperfect information. And it doesn't really matter if your accuracy rate is 70% or 90% because the nature of your job, you are able to fix the mistakes of yesterday relatively quickly. So there's an emphasis of speed over accuracy and you have to manage complexity with high levels of uncertainty. The life of an investor is much different. We make three consequential decisions a year, not 20, 30 a day. But the accuracy rate has to be above 95% for you to be a successful uh, long-term investor. And you're always making decisions about brand new markets, brand new teams, often brand uh, new business models. So there's, there's a, le- a steep learning curve and then very consequential decisions. Very different jobs, both intrinsically rewarding. When I finished my chapter as an entrepreneur and I had the opportunity to be an entrepreneur again or go into the investing, I decided I had a higher likelihood of being a really good investor than a really good manager. As I looked around me, I saw so many more people that would be better managers than me. And I thought maybe I'd I'd do better as an investor. 15 years forward, I think it was the right call for me It's not the right call for everyone. But I will tell you, having been a manager, I think it's made me, and an entrepreneur, a better investor. I understand that hard things are hard. I understand that a spreadsheet is just a spreadsheet. And what what matters is what gets implemented in the real world by real people with real customers and real competitors. I am grateful to managers and to entrepreneurs. They are the heroes of the journey. We back them, we give them our support, but they are the main actors. And I'm constantly reminded of that as I think of my role in the context of grand dreams and aspirations they have and that we're helping them, but it's their dream and they are the hero. So you mentioned as an investor having to often look into and and invest in new regions and new industries, right? Let's zoom in a little bit and a region that is an important part of GA's portfolio, but is also meaningful to you, of course. And, and I'm talking about Latin America. What, what makes you bullish for the region, uh, in particular, as you've seen 
the evolution of, of the Latin American economy over the last few decades? Listen, GA, we've been around for 41 years. Today we manage $80 billion. We've been very international for the last 30 of the 41 years. We opened Europe 30 years ago. We opened the emerging markets with opening three offices in China, India, and in Sao Paulo 20 years ago. So we've been in the emerging markets for 20 years. So Latin America has proven us to be a very fertile ground for our style of investing. And you know, to give you a sense, it's at real scale. Right now we have a portfolio of about north of $10 billion in Latin America with 17 uh, companies. It is a tough neighborhood. It is perhaps the toughest or tied to toughest in terms of the macro challenges, you know, the depreciating currencies, the political instability, the fiscal imbalances, the fog of uncertainty. There's always so much fog and it's always very hard to predict what next year looks like. And that makes a context that makes challenging to make capital decisions. Now, that same fog and these same barriers have created some really big problems that technology can solve. And there lies part of the reason we've been successful as a firm, and others have as well. I'll give you a couple of examples. Buying a used car is difficult anywhere in the world. It's difficult in the United States. It's difficult in Japan. It is harder in low-trust cultures uh, like Mexico, like Brazil, like Colombia, that creates an opportunity for someone like Carlos Garcia to launch Kavak, which is streamlining the way you buy used car vehicles with a guarantee that the company Kavak will ensure that what you're buying is what you're buying. So that Carvana is valuable in the United States. Kavak potentially has the opportunity to be even more valuable relative to market size because it solves a more entrenched problem. Exact same logic on renting or buying a home. It's hard everywhere. But in regions without MLS, in regions where, like in Brazil, for example, 90% of the listings are fake and they're just used as lead generation by brokers. If you've got a 100% verified platform where you can close a transaction in seven days between transaction to keys, that creates a lot of value. And potentially that will allow Quinto Andar in Brazil to become a multi-billion dollar company. It's solving a real pain point. Same with education. Most of our schools in Brazil use education materials that were seem to be designed in the 1930s with very little update. That creates an opportunity for someone like Arco, a digital platform that has over 2 million students now growing and creating lots of value, solving a real problem, structural problem with the educational system. A final example, lots of fraud, high fraud culture, related a little bit to low trust, but slightly different. That's created an opportunity for a company like Unico which uses a central identification database and biometrics to reduce fraud by more than 95% on online applications, or a company like DeLocal by being accessing 29 emerging markets with local teams and specialized algorithms that reduce fraud at international credit card transactions and has built a multi-billion dollar business allowing global merchants to tap into the emerging markets. So the emerging markets have problems, but technology can provide the solution. And we've done very well partnering with entrepreneurs that provide some of those solutions. Another reason I'm excited about, I'll give you, there's only three reasons, uh, so I won't go too long. The second reason is because of a history of instability and perpetual crises, over the last hundred years, there's been a couple industries that have become too consolidated. Banking industry, for example, 
At every crisis, the weaker banks would go under and the stronger banks would be consolidators of the industries. You do that for 80 years, you end up with four banks that consolidate 95% of the assets in Brazil and about 90% of the assets in Mexico. Heavily concentrated industries, you remember that from EC10, heavily concentrated industries leads to fat margins and subpar customer service frequently. Huge profit pool for the fintechs. Uh, so we've backed XP to disrupt the investment management industry. We've backed Neon and Clara, a company that you and I share in our portfolios, who's trying to disrupt the, the banking services. And Clip, which is the square of Mexico, that's trying to disrupt the acquiring services. So we have pockets of highly concentrated industries that are major profit pools that can be disrupted. And then the final one, which is super exciting, is we are a creative region and we're seeing some business models that don't exist anywhere in the world being imagined by Latin American entrepreneurs. And some of them have global applicability. Gympass and Hotmart, two very exciting companies in our portfolio, are global leaders of what they do. And they invented what they do. And they're reaching a scale where they can claim leadership at a global scale. And that's never happened before. And it's super exciting to see. No, that's a fascinating rundown on, I guess, what makes it different. Because a lot of people say this time is different. And I love that you've uh, you mentioned a lot of my former guests, right, uh, on this and my previous podcast, Words and Finta. But uh, switching gears a little bit. You know, it's it's not a secret that in venture capital, you need to be collaborative. Uh, you're not only working with the company you're investing in, but you also you're working with other investors. In your case, you know, you come in a little bit later, so you're working with investors who might have come in at the seed and Series A stages and beyond. So that means you've worked with a ton of investors from around the world. And in your experience. What makes a great investor, right? What have you seen with share common traits from great investors? Let me split the question in two. I believe for the tech ecosystem to thrive, we need to be collaborative. And there was a perfect ex experiment. If you compare Route 128 in the East Coast to Silicon Valley in the West Coast, highly competitive, highly individualistic, highly closed in culture on the East Coast, and a very collaborative culture on the West Coast, one became a hundred and maybe a thousand times more significant over the course of the 90s. So in, in young, rapidly evolving industries, I would suggest, and we believe this as a firm, collaboration is a win-win for us and for, for the community and, and for the development of the industry. Specifically in Latin America, my partners are, and I have tried to be collaborative with the venture community and some of our competitors and so forth. And I think it has paid off. And today we have an ecosystem that's showing signs of critical scale and where the multiple cases of successful companies that have tapped the market and, and new services being rendered. What makes a great investor? There are many attributes of a great, a great investor. What we look for when we partner with other investors is do they think like us in terms of long-term value creation? Are we aligned on a vision of long-term value creation with no shortcuts, which have emphasis on quality and customer success? And uh, if you are, uh, may the best idea win and let us work together in that long journey. And internally, right, 
how do you analyze a, a, an opportunity once it comes in? And like, what are some of the key things that you ask your team to think about and that you also ask yourself to consider? Yeah. So when I was asked to, uh, by our CEO, Bill Ford, to become chairman of the investment committee about five years ago, I honestly felt unprepared to the complexity of the task. I mean, we're a very global operation. This year we'll deploy north of $9 billion. We have a very large portfolio of about 170 companies. And we do five industries across the globe, so a lot of complexity. But when we dissected 41 years of data, uh, one of the advantages of being old is you have lots of data, so we have lots of data. Across the multiple strategies and across the geographies and the sectors, we saw a pattern that the best 10% of our transactions produce roughly about 50% of the game. That happened in the 80s, that happened in the 90s, that happened last year. When we looked at that 10% of companies, we identified seven characteristics that were shared by most of them. And we created a positive checklist. And we did the same on the negative checklist in the situations where capital was impaired. And it was a super fruitful exercise because we, we codified some of the things that we've talked about for a long time. So the founders, Steve Denning and Dave Hodgson, always talked about the three M's being important. Sort of the market, the model, and the management. And sure enough, the top three on the uh, most statistically significant uh, metrics in our positive checklist is, is how big is the addressable market? You're never going to be more valuable than the market you're going to after. How durable is your business model? Do you create and capture value? And is that value defensible because it has a moat? You know, it's sort of the quality and the durability of the business model. And then the management team. And it's interesting. We've become more sophisticated how we think about management team quality. It's really about, is this the right management team for the next five years of the company? And when you have companies that are growing 50, 60, 100% per year, it is not uncommon that the team that got the company to point A may not be the right team to get the company to point B. And there are some, some, some changes that need to be made. And we try to go at the opportunity in full transparency with our partners, with our assessment of what strengths and weaknesses and gaps we have to accomplish that which we say we want to do, which is your, your business plan for the next five years. So those are the three main drivers. There are four other ones, but these are the most significant ones, and they've been the same for 41 years. That's incredible how, how consistent it's been, right? And, and so you, you touched on the importance of the management team. I want to sort of dig in on that because at the end of the day, it's, it's all about, at least in the early stages, it's all about the management team. You know, having backed so many companies and having seen... Uh, the best leaders evolve from Series A or whatever all the way to IPO. You know, what, what are some of those traits that you found amongst the best and those that have been able to reinvent themselves and continue uh, leading the company onwards? I've had the pleasure of working with some amazing entrepreneurs, not just in Latin America, uh, globally, and it's the best part of the job, really. These people that are creating industry transforming companies are very special. They have an energy that's contagious. And the best part of my job is to be able to share a little bit of that energy when I'm in the room uh, with them. What, what are the, some of the things they have in common? They have a mission to change an industry and that mission speaks very personally to them. They didn't come up with the idea at HBS when they were reading a case. Something happened in their lives that meant investment management or transactions or financial inclusion or healthcare was really, really meaningful to them. And they're out to change the world. 
So there's a mission-driven component to them that sets apart a lot of the very successful entrepreneurs. Secondly, these are people that have a track record of success that predates this company. Whatever it was, they, they were champions of the sewing team in elementary school. It doesn't matter what it was, but whatever they wanted to do, they found a way to get it done. And the more difficult the challenge was, the more impressive it is the fact that they were able to achieve that. So I look at sort of small proof points of being able to overcome the odds and produce successful. However, they define success to be could be a sport, could be a leadership position, could be a, it's just a financial, uh, being able to overcome very bad financial situation in their family, or the opposite being to reach and wanting to prove themselves that they could do it without the family money, whatever it is, a track record of, of success. And then a third one, and this is, a, this is a subtle one, the best entrepreneurs combine, I call it rebus, which is a term from, from alchemy, which is in alchemy, the superior human being is the one that combines opposing attributes in balance. And some of the best CEOs are bold, yet risk-averse. They are micro, but they're macro. They're leaders, but they're managers. They are able to do both things really, really well. And what's interesting is sometimes it's not one person, it's pairs of people. It's people who, they're co-founders or very close to being co-founders, and together they combine those qualities. But either that person or that pair has those qualities, and you know, Guilherme with Mafra in, in XP, Ari with David in Arco, or, or JP with Mateos in Hotmart, they are these pairs, and then sometimes you got a guy like Cesar from Gympas, he's not a pair, he's, he's, he's got both in, in, in one situation. And, and you see it in the US, you know, Bill Gates and Paul Allen, Larry Page and Sergey Breen, there's always the, or even uh, Charlie Munger with Warren Buffett. Very different pairs, but together, it works really, really well. So I look at that, ability whether that team or that person has the ability to play both speeds. And if they do, it's, it's, it's most enduring, their ability to continue to defeat the odds. They can produce magic together, right? They can produce magic together, absolutely. <laughs> and, and al- as alchemists would say. Yeah. yeah. And, and entrepreneurs, they, they also, you know, they have, to, they have to manage a board, right? And that's, that's a topic... I wanted to ask you about because we don't often get to get to hear about, you know, managing a board and you've sat on on several boards throughout the year. You know, what what has in your experience, what, you know, what makes a productive and efficient board? I'm still learning. And I've been in dozens of boards. I think the best boards are diverse in background and skill. They have short meetings that are fun, and most of the work is done outside the board meeting. If you get those three components right, boards work. It is very rare that those three components exist, but I'm trying everywhere I go. I believe the real work happens outside the boardroom, and you have to tap into the individual abilities of each board member so that they can contribute to the journey of a company. And the board meeting is two hours a quarter, and you, it is a place for to be a sounding board for the CEO, primarily. And if he comes to report and expecting a pat on the back, it's a waste of two hours. But if he comes with questions, it's a wonderful two hours. Fascinating. And, and so when you consider the road ahead for our industry, right, for venture capital, growth equity, you know, what, what's down the road for you? You know, do you, how do you see the industry evolving? Because... 
everyone knows what's going on. There's a lot of capital coming in. A lot of it is moving extremely fast with, in some cases, less due diligence than you know many people are used to. And there's a lot of liquidity out there, obviously, right? Uh, what's, you know, what are your thoughts on this? Venture and growth capital have a very important role in society because they finance innovation. And innovation is, is important for shared prosperity and for us survival as a species, right? And for that industry to be truly global, it also helps reduce inequality at a global scale, which leads to more stability, which also helps us as a species. So I'm a big believer of the role of investors in the well-functioning of society. And it's, it's been like that for centuries, right? Someone financed Columbus' trip to the Americas. So someone is financing Elon Musk to go to Mars. All those things will prove consequential in due course and will change the, the course of, of, of our history. Having said that, the industry will get more competitive. There's clearly more capital coming into the industry. And long term, to continue to succeed, I think you will need deep domain knowledge. So being a generalist is unlikely to work. And you will need to develop value-add muscles to help companies grow faster, better than they would have without you. If you have those two things, you will do well. And I think the third one, which we're betting on, is being truly global. The globalization of entrepreneurship, the tearing down of trade barriers globally, the integration of the financial system means most companies will have to face global markets in due course. And to be able to be a good partner to them, you should be as global as they intend to be. So I think, you know, domain knowledge, value-add muscles, and globality will increasingly become important in a more competitive market. And zooming in on, on the global part, right, what steps have you taken to become truly, truly global? I mean, I guess uh, I know you have teams on the ground all around the world. You're not just centralized in, in New York or London. But um, yeah, let's talk about that. Let's talk about some of the global trends and, that you're seeing and also how, uh, what steps and, and how are you uh, actually becoming a global firm? That's a great question, Miguel. Um, in Brazil, to give you an example, and the same is true in Shanghai, the same is true in Mumbai. We have a local team that thinks of itself as the most local of all the teams they compete against. So they're as local as the most local Indonesian fund or Indian fund or Brazilian fund. But they're also the most global because they're truly plugged into what we are globally since our foundation. And structurally, GA has two big differences, one of which is the one firm policy. And that is we only have one fund. And we all share on the economics of that one fund independently of where the transaction was done. So many of our competitors have, have a franchise model. So the, the India office has its own PL and they share about 10% of the economies with the globe and they share a brand and some consistency, but they're really a collection of relatively autonomous products or regions. We're a single firm out of a single, largely out of a single pot of capital where everyone gets paid at the global on the global uh, performance, and a partner is a partner is a partner regardless of where they are. So we, we've standardized compensation, and we manage talent based on meritocracy regardless of where you are. And that's how you get this accident of having a Bolivian chairing the investment committee of a global firm. It, it's really, really global, and it really, really works. And we think that's 
the big differentiators of us in our industries, we've achieved, which is really hard to do. It sounds simple. It's really, really hard to create the processes that allow for a truly one firm. As far as we know, we, I, have, I have not met another financial institution that has this level of globality. And it started with the vision of Steve Zedding and Dave Hodgson, who really wanted to create a one firm ethos. Now, I love it. I love it. And Martin, before I let you go, when you think of your entrepreneurial and investing journey, who come to mind as some of the most influential, helpful, and consequential people along the way? I'll mention four people that really touched me. Um, as a sophomore in, in college, uh, I took a class on the Cuban Revolution by a, a professor who would later turn out to be a controversial figure, but a brilliant professor. And the beauty of his class, and it was secret, the, the structure of the class was purposely kept secret, is you'd show up on a Tuesday and you'd hear about the events of the beginning of the revolution from the standpoint of the revolution. And you become convinced that Cuba was a country ruled by a dictatorship that needed a revolution to set things right and free the people from the oppression of the dictator. And then on Thursday that same week, he'd come back and he'd tell you exactly the same story, but for the standpoint of the opposite. This was a democratically elected regime that had extended its domain because there was a terrorist threat to the country. The facts were the same, but on both days he would convince you that the narrative was completely different. And he was so skilled at doing this. And that exercise of being able to look at reality from very opposing viewpoints and understand that those two viewpoints can be can be reconciled with the same fact person is an exercise that I always, I like to play devil's advocate. And he did it so well that it made really an, an imprint in me. Another consequential learning, and it's my life partner, my wife, I've been married for 21 years. And she's taught me about the regret minimization framework. And it was a very critical time. And it goes back to being an entrepreneur. In the value of death of Submarino, when we were about to go bankrupt, I gave up on Brazil and I gave up on Submarino. And I decided to look for a job in the United States. And I convinced, we were pregnant with our first kid. And I took a job, I mean, a horrible job, sausage company in Chicago in the middle of the winter. It's what I could get. I mean, it's, you know, beggars can't be choosers. And then she's like, fine, we'll go, we'll go to the sausage factory. And just as I was going, and it was in the middle of the winter, uh, Submarino called me back. Well, my partner, who was then CFO, CEO, said, I think we have a shot at going public. 50-50 shot, because we're still tough. Why don't you come and help us take public? And I was like, sorry, I'm already in Miami. I'm on the way to the sausage factory. <laughs> and, and my wife, Daniela, comes to me and says, Martin, just, just calm down. If you go to the sausage factory and Submarina goes public, you're going to hate yourself for not having been there and live the amazing time that Submarina has in front of it. But on the other hand, if you go to Chicago and Submarina fails at going public, you will never forgive yourself because there's no better person in the world to take a company public than you, and you happen to be the co-founder of this company. So either way, you have to go back. Otherwise, you will regret this decision. And it was the best decision I ever made. Of course, we took it public, blah, 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 blah. And, 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 you know, my life changed dramatically. And that was a critical time. And she taught me about this regret minimization framework. I've since heard Jeff Bezos use the exact same framework, but she said it first, 10 years before I heard it from Jeff Bezos. And then that was interesting. And then finally... The CEO of GA, Bill Ford, real role model about not only how he makes investment decisions, and it's just been incredible to see his mind at work, but how, how he sees himself as a true partner to managers and that ethos of being a good partner to managers. We started with Steve and Hodge before him, 
has really permeated. And he's run GA with a sort of, I call it caring meritocracy. So seeing someone combine those three attributes in a really effective way has been, it's been a pleasure. I've been working with him for 11 years and uh, it's been a pleasure. Fantastic. And I love the story of, of Submarino, how, uh, I guess Submarino floated back up to the surface. <laughs> you would be surprised you're not the first person to make that joke. But yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm not surprised. <laughs> um, no, Martin, listen, fantastic conversation uh, from one Bolivian to another. Muchísimas gracias. Uh, really enjoyed chatting. And I really hope this is not uh, our last conversation. I really hope it's uh, one of many. Thank you for the invitation and thank you for the initiative of running such a beautiful podcast. Thank you, Martin. Thanks for tuning in and I hope you enjoyed one of my all-time favorite episodes with Martin Escobari, Senior Leader at General Atlantic. It's truly an inspiration. If you want more interviews, make sure to subscribe, follow, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. It helps and truly, truly means a lot. As always, I want to extend a very special thank you to the great editor, Rafael Ostria, for his amazing work behind the scenes. Signing off till next week, I'm your host, Miguel Armazar. <laughs>